This is episode number 37, You Can Prevent and Reverse Disease, with Dr. Esselstyn. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories. Along the way, I was noticing that there were many cultures where cardiovascular disease was virtually non-existent. And it was because they were all eating cold food, plant-based nutrition without oil. And it just suddenly dawned on me that, look, maybe the best way to get at this is if we can show people how to eat to save themselves from the number one killer of women and men in Western civilization. They eat to save their heart, but they'll also be saving themselves from the common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, perhaps pancreatic. Thanks so much for listening to my show, you guys. And if you're brand new and this is your first episode, welcome. We're happy to have you. Today's guest is someone that I'm really excited about. Someone who has had a massive impact and influence on my life, my husband's life, and many, many people around the globe. He has saved thousands and thousands of people's lives using plant-based nutrition to prevent and reverse diseases. His name is Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. And while he's well known for being an MD working at the Cleveland Clinic, he also is an Olympic gold medalist in 1956. That's right. He's probably our oldest podcast guest. He's 84 years old, but you would never guess it by talking to him and looking at him because he's so incredibly healthy. Dr. Esselstyn presently directs the Cardiovascular Prevention and Reversal Program at the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute. And the really interesting thing about Dr. Esselstyn is that initially he was doing surgery, helping people who had breast cancer and thyroid and parathyroid cancers. And he also worked in cardiology. And what happened was he realized that while he was helping all these people who already had these diseases, there was nothing actually in place to prevent these diseases from happening in the first place. So he started conducting his own research and he discovered that diet is the primary contributor to heart disease and certain types of cancers. He started doing his own research and he has over 150 scientific publications to date. And the interesting thing that Dr. Esselstyn did was he was able to take patients with end-stage heart disease, patients who were basically sent home to die, and he treated them with a plant-based diet, a whole foods plant-based diet that had no animal products whatsoever and no oil. And something extraordinary happened. He found that he could reverse these patients' heart disease and that they were able to live many, many more years after the reversal of their heart disease. In 1995, he published his benchmark long-term nutritional research arresting and reversing coronary artery disease in severely ill patients. So he actually documented this. That same study was updated at 12 years and reviewed beyond 20 years in his book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease, making it one of the longest longitudinal studies of its type. I personally have the book, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease. It was one of the very first books I bought when I changed my diet because I was influenced by the documentary that came out in 2000. 11 forks over knives and the book is amazing it has a bunch of different pictures actually showing what the patient's arteries look like when they started reversing their heart disease and it has everything that you need to know so if you know somebody who has heart disease i strongly suggest that you buy this book and just tell them hey if they want to give it a try they should because the results are astounding and life-saving more recently, in July of 2014, he reported the experience of 198 participants seriously ill with cardiovascular disease. During 3.7 years of follow-up of the 89% adherent to the program, 99.4% avoided further major cardiac events. 99.4% survived whenever they followed an 89% adherence to the diet. So that's amazing. That's irrefutable. So I'm so excited to have him on the show because we talk about a number of things. We talk about his experience in the Olympics. I did not want to leave that part out. He went to the Olympics for rowing, and that's amazing. But we also talk about his journey, how he went through this research process, how he's helped heal thousands of people, and how he can help change your life. If you've been listening to the show for a while, you've heard his son, Rip Esselstyn, from Engine 2 Diet. His podcast was the most popular podcast of 2017, so I highly recommend checking that out as well. 
I want to mention a really forward-thinking company called Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and health-conscious people like us. And speaking of the health benefits of eating a plant-based diet, Health IQ has exclusive savings for vegans because we are at a much lower risk of mortality from diabetes, cancer, and heart disease. All the things we talk about in this podcast. They also have special rates for athletes. So check out healthiq.com slash Sonia or mention the promo code Sonia when you talk to a health IQ agent. All right, let's get into the show. And my co-host, my husband, Matt, is back. He definitely wanted to be in on this episode. Here is Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn. Yeah, I changed my diet about five years ago after watching Forks Over Knives and my entire life got better. I won more races. I won the world championship after changing my diet. So I promote eating this way. Uh, you've increased your nitric oxide. Yes. Mm. Better blood flow. And I was always worried about getting like heart disease because of high blood pressure runs in my family. And I've always been worried about cancer. So when I met Matt, he ate a plant-based diet and he told me about forks over knives. So I watched it. And ever since both of us eat that way and it's really made a difference in our lives. So thank you so much for, for, being, for, for doing that for us. Yeah, it's actually interesting. When I watched the movie, I I thought, oh my gosh, I'd never been exposed to this information. And I just had this sinking feeling like, oh, I'm going to have to eat every piece of meat I can get in my fridge because it's just all got to go, you know? And But anyway, it was just, quote, a, a movie. So I looked up you and I looked up uh, Dr. Campbell's research. And, and I'm sure you won't remember this, but I actually called you and you returned my call and left a voicemail. Uh, and I actually remember, I remember calling and saying, hey, I'm concerned of being an athlete and how this can impact things because I'd bought in your book and I'd had my plan of how I was going to change my diet. And, and you pointed me to your son Rip's website and he was just building out Engine 2 at that point. And it was, it was great. So thank you for taking the time to randomly return a phone call. You're welcome. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, and, and Matt's story is actually he bought uh, Prevent and Reverse Heart Disease and then he ate exclusively out of that cookbook for six months. Yeah, absolutely. I, mean, I have no heart disease. I've had no history of heart disease or anything like that, but I just, I needed to be regimented and strict. And so I followed the plan every meal a day for, yeah, it, it changed my life. It was great. Yeah. So like, we want to talk about you. <laughs> We're talking about us so sitting here. Um, so we've had some Olympic medalists on the podcast, but you are the oldest Olympic medalist we've had on the show. So we want to talk about <laughs> when you won your Olympic medal and, and what sport that was in and what that was like for you. Well, I, I have to say at the outset that I was not plant-based then. Yeah. So what were you eating in, at that time? Training table was the usual, you know, roast beef and potatoes and, and vegetables. And it was pretty standard American fare. Uh, that was back in 1956. But I don't think you want to talk about, well, the thing that was exciting about that was, of course, that we won. That was, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I got to talk for an hour on the Olympics, but I don't want to do that. Now, this is, that's all history. So humble, just push away the Olympic medal. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I, no, it was, but what happened was, I'll give it in a nutshell. We, uh, I can remember in January of 1956, I was interviewing for medical school in Cleveland. And uh, I can remember the dean looking at me and saying, if we give you a place in the class this fall, in September of 56, can you think of any reason why you wouldn't accept? And I said, uh, no, I really can't. I'd like to come. I said, oh, well, wait a minute. I said, <laughs> I don't intend to give up rowing this spring. And uh, if we should have a really good crew, we might try to enter the Olympic trials. And if we happened to have a really, really good crew and we won the Olympic trials, we would be asked to represent the United States which with the games being in Australia would mean I'd have to be training with the crew in September and October. And then we would be leaving in November. And I said, I'd have to, I couldn't be here. And he looked at me, he smiled and he said, well, uh, why don't we worry about that if it ever happens? <laughs> so sure enough, what happened in, in, in June, we, uh, we won our first several races. We lost by an eyelash to Cornell and the, the Eastern Sprints. And then we went up to uh, and raced against Harvard, and we just beat him by something like six or seven lengths. <laughs> and then we were going to be up again against Cornell in the uh, Olympic trials, the crew that had beaten us earlier by a whisker. And uh, while we were training up at 
Lake Onondaga in Syracuse. I can recall when we were with our coach, we were out training. And meanwhile, back at the boathouse, a number of other coaches were very upset with the draw, feeling that Yale had a very favorable. So they draw, so they had changed while we were out with our coach on the water. And we got reporters rushed up to him and said, Coach Rashmit, what do you think about the fact that they've, they've changed the draw? And Jim was wonderful. He just said, well, let me tell you, when we came up to Syracuse, our intent was to beat everybody. And I don't really much care the order in which we do it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do it. Beating everybody is a good goal. <laughs> so uh, we did. We came up against, uh, in the final, we came up against Washington, the Navy admirals who had won in 1952. They were trying to repeat, and Cornell. We crushed them. <laughs> it was it was terrific, yeah. So we once at the uh, I so then I called the dean from medical school and said, "Look, it's happened. I I can't be. I can't." He said, "Why don't we do this? Then? Why don't we just postpone it for a year?" And I said, "That would be fine." But my draft board didn't say it was fine. I thought if I was not in medical school, I had to be drafted. So I called Yale Medical School, and I said. You know, I'm interested in wondering if I can be a, a student at Yale Medical School because I'm in an awkward situation. But they were wonderful. They accepted me at Yale Medical School. So in the morning, I would go to medical school in September and October. The afternoon, the guys would drive up to the car and pick me up, and I'd forget all about medical school in the afternoon. I was training. And then in November, since we left for the games for a month and a half, and there was no more medical school then. And, and in the games... Uh, it's interesting in the Olympics, You, in our first draw, we finished first, we didn't finish second, we finished third. And uh, we were a little bit down about that because fortunately in the Olympics, if you miss on that first race, they think about whether it's a broken oar lock or a broken oar or something. You get to go into what we call the repechage. So the repechage is all the losers get together and they have, while the other crews are resting because they they've automatically gone into the semifinal. The crews that have lost have got to race the very next day in the repechage, which we did, and we, and we won. So now we had, because we hadn't raced in over six and a half months. Oh, and suddenly we were a little rusty. So we ended up getting ourselves into the semifinal. And in the semifinal, we were now up against again the uh, crews, that, some of the crews that had beaten us, namely Australia. They were favored. And somehow we went flat out. And we, we beat them, not by much, maybe four or five feet. And, but no, uh, with the effort in some of us, made us, you know, you, you, maybe you've done it in biking too. We, it just suddenly stopped rowing. We ended up vomiting. And, <laughs> and the uh, Australian press picked us up. And, and the very next day, because if you were first or second, you qualified for the final. So they were saying, the Aussies out out uh, out with the Yanks. Silly Yanks extend themselves, you know, overstressed. They'll be sick. They won't be able to do well. He was the greatest thing that could have happened to us. So now we're in the final, and the uh, final Australia was right next to us, and then there was Sweden and Canada, and we always have a tradition that before the race starts, the coxswain shakes the race or shakes the hand of the number eight or the stroke. Stroke turns around, shakes seven. Seven turns around, shakes my hand. I turn around, shake Charlie, and so forth. Well, you know, this brassy guy, number five for Australia, saw us doing this. And by now, this we've been in camp for several weeks. We, we knew uh, most of them. And the Aussie says, I say, Charlie, haven't you met Don yet? <laughs> <laughs> that was just a squeeze that our adrenal gland needed. And we went off, we, and we held them at, even at the start and through the body of the race. They, we wouldn't let them get away. And then we had enough left to, uh, to beat them by about three-quarters from like It was convincing, and that gave, us the, uh, that gave us the goal. So it was quite a saga. But then all that changed, and I went back to medical school, and I said, this is no way to start medical school. So I finished the, at Yale, and they said, oh, you can make it up during the summer. I said, no. So I withdrew, and I went back to... Cleveland. And so I'm really, I'm one of the few physicians you'll know who has ever had two first years of medical school. 
That's serious <laughs> endurance because that's that's the hardest year, isn't it? Yeah, they all seem pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So how did you start transitioning towards? like plant-based nutrition because back then I'm sure that people weren't talking about that. So what, what was your path? Well, when I finished my medical school, I went to my internship and my residency training was at the Cleveland Clinic except for uh, six months as a senior registrar at St. George's Hospital in London, uh, England. And so in 1966, after I finished my training, immediately I found myself in the Army first year at Fort Bragg and the second year I was a combat surgeon in Vietnam. Then I came back and was uh, asked to join the staff at the Cleveland Clinic in General Surgery and I eventually became chairman of our breast cancer task force and head of the section on thyroid and parathyroid surgery. But it was in my role in the late 1970s as chairman of breast cancer task force that I became increasingly disillusioned with the fact that for no matter how many women I was doing breast surgery, I was doing absolutely nothing for the next unsuspecting victim. And this led to a bit of a global survey on my part. And it was quite striking that the breast cancer rates in places like Kenya were 30, 40 times less frequent than the United States. Breast cancer in rural Japan in the 1950s was very infrequently identified. And yet as soon as the Japanese women would migrate to the United States for the second and third generation, they now had the same rate of breast cancer as their, their Caucasian counterpart. Perhaps even more powerful was cancer of the prostate in the entire nation of Japan. In 1958, how many autopsy-proven deaths were there from cancer of the prostate? The entire nation. 18. The most mind-boggling public health figure I've ever heard. By 1978, 20 years later, they were up to 137, which still pales in comparison to the 28,000 who will die this year in this country. And so... Along the way, I was noticing that there were many cultures where cardiovascular disease was virtually non-existent. And it was because they were all eating whole food, plant-based nutrition without oil. And it just suddenly dawned on me that, look, maybe the best way to get at this is if we can show people how to eat to save themselves from the number one killer of women and men in Western civilization. They eat to save their heart. They'll also be saving themselves from the common Western cancers of breast, prostate, colon, perhaps pancreatic. I'm sorry to interrupt, but so during that time, there was a lot of advancement in, there's a lot of concern over heart disease in particular, and, and new drugs were coming out to treat it. So this is sort of your journey is happening at the same time as this backdrop is happening. Is that true? Yeah, but what was, what was going on with this felt that I had to do a study because there was really, there was no great, you know, information about nutrition and heart disease. So it just seemed to me that if I could get a small number of people, because I was still actually involved in surgery at the clinic in 1984. Finally, I kicked this off. It was hard for me to really, finally, I knew I was going to do this study, but I didn't know when it would start because I was a cholesterolholic. I mean, I grew up on an Aberdeen Angus beef farm and a dairy farm. My dad had his first heart attack at age 43. Whoa. And, uh, you know, that's a young, a young man. So uh, Dr. Prochaska from Rhode Island has shown that when you were making lifestyle changes, you go through several phases, pre-contemplation, contemplation, action, maintenance. And I was probably over here somewhere around pre-contemplation and... In April of 84, Ann and I were at a surgical meeting in New Haven. The papers were boring, the weather was rotten, and uh, they always have a banquet after these conferences. And at the banquet, the waitress put a plate of ro roast beef in front of me. The roast beef was so big, it was draped over the sides. So I looked at my plate, and Ann looked at me, and she said, you're not going to eat your roast beef? And I said, no. Oh, she said, oh, no, then I'll have it. <laughs> but Ann's mother at age 52 had died of breast cancer. Two weeks after that meeting, her sister came down with breast cancer cool. and she said, I'm with you. And so we started ourselves and for the next year of eight plant-based, my cholesterol kind of plummeted. No drugs, but after uh, three months, it was 155 down from 190, and I was so upset and disappointed. I wanted to be like a Tarahumara Indian. <laughs> and I just don't, I mean, I had to stop the oil. 
Blue stopped the oil, and then another month or two, it was 119. I said, well, now I'm ready to go. So I spoke with our Department of Cardiology and asked if I could have about 24 patients who were ill with cardiovascular disease. And the people that I got, my late brother-in-law, referred to as Essie's walking dead. <laughs> they their first or second bypass. They were too sick for this procedure, or they had failed their first and second angioplasty, or they had refused. There were five that were told by their expert cardiologists they would not live out the year. Those five made it beyond 20 years. And we began to see suddenly some striking results, not only with their symptoms going away, but we could show evidence of disease reversal. So that's, that's how it got going. And then I put together, I mean, it just seemed to me that we were really missing something nationally here. So that's why in 1991, I put together with the director and program chairman of the first national conference on the prevention and reversal of heart disease. I thought, gosh, everybody will tumble to this now. Look at the results we're getting. That's dreaming. That's like a turn around the Queen Mary. So <laughs> I'll do one more of these conferences in 1997. This time we had over 500 people, uh, health professionals of 10. I had a blue ribbon faculty. And, uh, and then, again, nothing really much seemed to come of it. So when I retired from surgery in 2000, you know, I was just so convinced that, that what I had was pretty powerful stuff. I mean, here you could not only could stop this disease, but you could reverse it, not with drugs or procedures or operations. You could do it with food. And so uh, we were pretty well criticized because our study was small. And uh, they said, what you're doing is fairly extreme uh, or severe or significant, this transition. And anybody tells me that today, I said, well, no, that's, wait a minute, let's be clear about this. The most severe extreme draconian diet on the planet today is the one that 97% of Americans are eating, which will guarantee that they will suffer from some chronic illness. So as we did it again. And uh, I got rehired by the Cleveland Clinic Wellness Institute, where I still uh, once a month conduct an intensive counseling seminar with uh, patients who are severely ill with cardiovascular disease. And the paper we published in the Journal of Family Practice in 2000 was this time of 200 patients. And of the 89.3, almost 90% who were adherent to our program, there was one small stroke over the four-year period of observation. So that's pretty much the uh, a rapid bit of background. And the, uh, the saga continues. Uh, it's, it's getting to be more powerful than ever. When uh, I told you that back in 1991, when we put on the first national conference for the elimination and prevention of heart disease, nowadays there's about six or seven of those conferences per year. And there's a growing body of allied health professionals who have become interested and committed. But we've, we've obviously got a long ways to go, but it's happening. To me, the reason I'm still so passionate about medicine today as compared to even when I was doing surgery is that it's as if the heavens have opened and given medicine the most powerful tool they've ever had in their toolbox. Because when you're treating patients with heart disease, you don't just treat their heart disease. Their obesity resolved. Their hypertension resolved. Their hypercholesterolemia resolved. Heart disease resolved. The risk for stroke dissolved, resolved. Risk for vascular dementia resolved. Ulcerative colitis gone. Crohn's disease now gone. Rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, multiple sclerosis gone. Wow. Allergies, asthma. I mean, we've never had anything like like this. Yeah, I really wanted you to come on the show because a lot of people will read about this in books and see say read a bunch of different examples of how people were healed of whatever their diseases were using plant-based lifestyle medicine. But hearing it from you directly, where you have been doing this for decades and you've had hundreds, if not thousands of cases where you've seen this repeatedly, it brings a lot of credibility to the diet. And I also think that people are like, well, whatever, if I get heart disease or I get cancer, then I'll change my diet. And people wait till it's too late. So what would you say to somebody who is in that pre-contemplative state who wants to make the change but is having trouble actually doing it? Well, what you say to somebody like this, they are already filled with disease. How do I know that? Well, 
If you looked at the autopsy data of our GIs who died in Korea, average age 20, 80% already have gross evidence of coronary artery disease that you can see without a microscope. Not enough for the cardiac events yet, but that study was then repeated 45 years later, 1999. Now, looking at all, looking at women and men between the ages of 17 and 34 who have died of accidents, homicides, and suicides. Now the disease is ubiquitous. Everybody. You graduate from high school in this country, you get a diploma. And you also get the foundation for heart disease, but you keep eating this way through your 30s and 40s. And now you begin to have your clinical cardiac events in an illness that you have been developing since you were a teenager. So what I would say, and then to back that up, there just last month in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, there was a striking article from Spain. And they looked at over 1,500 people who were totally normal, optimal risk factors. Their risk factors were right in line with where the American Heart Association would want you to be. Then they carefully studied all those patients. They did cardiac CT of their heart to look for calcium, ultrasound to look at blockages in their carotid, ultrasound to look at their aorta just beneath the kidney and the iliofemoral vessels going to their legs. 50% of those people with absolutely optimal risk factors had demonstrable disease. Now, they were still young, I think this part of all, they were most, most of them were below, below 60. But what's gonna happen to that disease as they get into their 70s and 80s? Why, who wants to ever have dementia? That's part of one of the worst diseases you can possibly have. Be alive, but you're totally out in left field. You have no contact with reality. And other people have no contact with you. And it's especially brutal because you've probably been a friend or a loved one all their life. And then they say, you're, you're here, but you're gone. It's brutal. But again, whole food, plant-based nutrition. This is a way the body was able to handle it. So also you'd mentioned the impacts on cancer and certain types of cancer. What's the impact of whole food plant-based diet on managing breast cancer, prostate cancer, and, and other cancers? To find really a long-term definitive study is challenging from that regard. But we know, for example, that for all the 17 years that Dennis Birkin, a physician from England, working in Africa, I think he saw one case of colon cancer, and that was in another missionary. Wow. Basically, I've been growing that while he was living in England. And also, we know now that there's been some, it's so powerful that the World Health Organization in October of 2015 looked at the data on colon cancer and red meat. It was it's tight, tight enough so that they were able to classify red meat in the same category of carcinogenic risk as cigarette smoking. Now, it's interesting that if you look at a nation, the study is kind of interesting that came out of Finland. In 1971-72, Karelia, which is a province in northern Finland, a lot of loggers, truckers, lumbermen, they were, you know, it was potted cream was so the <laughs> I mean it was just the way and a lot of smoking. And they were the heart attack capital of the world. So Pekka Puska, who's a very energetic, enterprising, wonderful physician, went to Karelia and worked with the local authorities there to get rid of smoking, to get rid of the animal foods, to try to emphasize plant foods. That was now they followed them over thirty five years. Excuse me, over thirty by 85%, they reduced the rate of cancer by 67%. Wow. Yeah, it's hard to deny this. And it's it's been a, a source of frustration actually for us because we've been able to influence a lot of people to change their diets and show them that this can make your life better in a number of ways. But our own family members refuse to change their diets. And it's because I think ultimately people don't believe that this is true. And it's really hard when you actually do see that this is true. So like, what do you say to somebody when they say to you, well, no, this just isn't true? Or, or I mean, I think, and also part of that is 
the confusion of the media grabbing studies and, and promoting. And so if you look for, you know, a counter argument, you'll find all this data. So maybe how do you how do you sort through that information to make good decisions? Uh, you know, there are a couple of ways. You can do a first start my family is totally fine based because why? Maybe you can imagine the amount of information that they over the years. In other words, education does the trick. I mean, it's very. I think somebody you said somebody used to say I'm sure. Well, all they have to do is, they don't even want to read it. They just have to look at the pictures. If they just look at the pictures in my book of disease reversal, of the PET scan showing reversal, of the pulse vines showing reversal, reversal in the carotid artery going to the brain, reversal coronary arteries to the heart, reversal femoral arteries to the leg. It's all there. It has absolutely been published. Now, the thing that makes people confusing is that you have to remember this. Anybody can write a book. It's not scientifically peer-reviewed. You can say whatever you can write a book. And there have been a series of books. Barry Sears in the zone. Uh, Agassin in the South Beach diet. Atkins diet. Wheat belly. Grain brain. Paleo. Now, and of course, you can include Dean's book and my book. And of all those authors, there have been two. But before they ever wrote the book, they did the peer-reviewed scientific research, which proves the point that they were making in the book. Those two, one was Dr. Dean Arnish, and the other was Dr. Caldwell Esselstyn from Ohio. <laughs> and that, that's good advice. I think a lot of people don't understand how to be critical of their sources. So that, I think that's really practical advice for, for people. I have another question about maybe your personal experience. So during your journey of changing your diet, you had kids at, that they weren't raised right from the beginning, I don't believe, as uh, on a plant-based day. My grandchildren were. Right, yeah. So, and in particular to the athletes, a lot of athletes follow this podcast because of, of Sonia and, and, and what uh, her career has been like. And she's talked about the change in, in her career. But for Rip, for your son, what was it like for you? Were you concerned about his switch to the diet and his performance? And, and sort of how did you get through all that? Fine. I mean, Rip, Rip into it, and he did it, and he it was able to sustain him as a very successful competitive triathlete for 10 years. And then he said, listen, I don't think I'm going to do this the rest of my life. So that's when he became a fireman, which he did for 12 years. And then after he wrote his book, he was hired away from the fire department by John Mackey, who was the chairman of the Whole Foods. So he now works as an ambassador and spokesperson for Whole Foods, and he has developed a line of foods for Whole Foods. Yeah, we had him on the podcast, and last year his podcast recording that we did was the most popular of the entire show. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, so um, this is something that I think is really interesting, is a lot of athletes think that they're exempt from eating a, a healthy diet, and they think that they can out-exercise the odds of of heart disease or high blood pressure, and they say, well, I exercise, therefore I can eat whatever I want. So what would you say to those people? I would say, again, let's go to science. There's a wonderful study of uh, in Germany of uh, these were athletes who were all over the age of 55 who had competed in three marathons the year before, right? hundred of them. When they carefully studied them, 90 already had cardiovascular disease. Wow. Yeah, like you just count, you can't, I'll say it again, you can't out-exercise yourself out of a bad diet. And well, also, so, sorry. When I, when I so common when I see patients and they call me and they say, Dr. Esselstyn, I don't understand this. I've gone to the gym all my life, or I've exercised all my life. And I just went to my doctor and I had a stress test that it was, it was uh, something I failed, so they went ahead with an angiogram, and I've got these blockages. I don't understand. I exercise all my life. Gym yeah, you can't do that. I mean, the famous one everybody knows about is Jim Fix, who was a great runner who <laughs> dropped dead of a heart attack while training in New England. Yeah, and as like an ultra-endurance athlete, that used to be something I worried about. Like, what if I'm wearing out my heart because I hear about endurance athletes dying in their 40s? But after I started doing my own research, I learned that it's not because your heart's getting overworked from exercise. It's because there's blockages in your heart from your diet. 
Well, I think that's an excellent point. I think, though, that we are appropriately, though, looking at endurance athletes. Because I don't think we have in recorded history any good examples of people who go out and bike for 24 hours straight. When was there ever a tribe or a run with hunters who ran for 24 hours? I mean, it's because we know that, for, for instance, the people who go into what we call atrial fibrillation, and it's not controlled with medication or otherwise, you may have a heartbeat of upwards of you know, 200 or more. And if that keeps up for too many days, suddenly within a, several days, your heart is so tired, you're going into congestive heart failure. So we have to, uh, when I examine the, the concept of people going out and, and running or biking indefinitely, sustaining themselves along the way with some water and some bananas or concentrated food, what's that really doing to their heart? And there are some people who obviously can do that, but there are others who seem to develop injury and fibrosis and scarring, especially the right ventricle. So I have, uh, I'm not completely sanguine. I mean, you know, for, well, how long was our rowing race? I mean, our rowing race, the longest one is Harvard, which is 20 minutes. <laughs> we're, we're up, we're at the max, I will grant you. But that's not 24 hours. And the people that go out and run for 24 hours and bike for 24 hours or, or other extreme forms of exercise, I just want to be sure that that's safe. Yeah, and it's interesting because, yeah, usually people don't go for that long, but it's really common for endurance athletes to do five to eight hours and or have multi-day races where you're doing three to eight hours a day. And a symptom that happens is you can't get your heart rate as high after four or five days. Like your max heart rate is lower. You're, you can't push your heart to go that hard because it's fatigued. So I sometimes worry about that too. Like what is this actually doing? <laughs> what are you thinking? Probably in shorter, shorter race. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's no. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think having a whole food plant-based diet obviously gives you a more effect. Your heart has a, a better chance of, of survival if it doesn't, it's not fighting blockages as, as well as those stresses, right? But that might be a, a good question. So scientifically speaking, what is it about a whole food plant-based diet that provides an athlete in particular with better chances of performance or a higher performance? Yeah, I think they've done that with bikers. Actually, they, they gave them, uh, I think it was beats that showed that there was something like a 16% improvement for these professional bikers over a fixed course. And they did it before and after, and there's no question that their, uh, their stamina was improved. I think that for your audience that doesn't know this, we might just delve for a moment. For all experts would agree, is where this disease has its inception, its onset, its beginning, heart disease, is when we progressively injure the life jacket and the guardian of our blood vessels, which happen to be that delicate innermost lining, which has a name, the endothelium. And the endothelium makes a truly remarkable molecule of gas, nitric oxide, which is provides the great salvation and protection of all of our vasculature. Now, for example, what are the functions of nitric oxide? One, nitric oxide keeps all the cellular elements in our bloodstream flowing smoothly like Teflon rather than Velcro. Keeps things from getting sticky. Number two, nitric oxide is the strongest blood vessel dilator in the body. When you climb stairs, the arteries to your heart, the arteries to your legs, they widen, they dilate, that's nitric oxide. Number three, nitric oxide prevents the wall of the artery from becoming thickened, stiff, or inflamed, protects you from getting high blood pressure or hypertension. Number four, here's the key. A safe and normal amount of nitric oxide will protect you from ever developing blockages or plaque. So literally everybody on the planet who has cardiovascular disease, whether they're in Chicago, New York, London, or Boston, Berlin, they have their disease because by now, in the preceding decades, they have so sufficiently trashed, injured, and compromised the capacity of their endothelial cells to make nitric oxide. They simply didn't have enough to protect themselves from making these blockages or plaque. But the good news here is this. This is not a malignancy. And once you can get persons who are ill with cardiovascular disease to get it through their head, that never again are they to pass through their lips a morsel of food that has the capacity to further injure 
an endothelial system, which is already an endothelial train wreck, which is why they've had their first heart attack. And the natural question then is, what are the foods that every time they pass your lips, you injure the endothelial cells? They are any drop of oil, olive oil, corn oil, soybean oil, safflower oil, sunflower oil, coconut oil, palm oil, oil in a cracker, oil in a piece of bread, oil in a salad dressing. You guys are read oil. Uh, we avoid it as much as possible. Uh, we do eat oil sometimes, but we don't eat very much of it. Like it would be primarily from a whole food source is where we try and get our fats. Yeah. We don't ever add it. We don't add oil. <laughs> oil injures your endothelial cell. But what about from like avocado? Does that injure your, your endothelial cells? Avocado has so much fat and saturated fats. I don't like it for my heart patients. No, absolutely not. For people who don't have heart disease, it's fine. But even for those members who don't have heart disease, what did I just tell you a few minutes ago about that paper that came out that showing that even with the optimal risk factors, 50% already have the formation of cardiovascular plaque. So in other words, when do you think the great transition occurred with heart disease? Did we have an epidemic of heart disease in the 1890s? No. 1900? No. It all kind of began after World War One, right? When it suddenly began, you go into restaurants. I know it really started because when Procter & Gamble in Cincinnati began <laughs> making Crisco, Chris, everybody, restaurants everywhere, and suddenly after World War One, when it became fashionable to eat out at restaurants, you didn't always eat with the family, all restaurants give you the oil. And, it's, and it became, and the, the advertising campaign was so incredible. And that's when suddenly was to preserve things in a box, a bag, or a can, oil, right? So suddenly that, with that avalanche of oil, was really when this epidemic sort of took off. So we got oil taken care of. Now, other thing that injures the endothelium are anything with a mother or a face, meat, fish, chicken, fowl, turkey, eggs. Do you guys ever eat any of those things? Nope. Or anything that is dairy, milk, cream, butter, cheese, ice cream, and yogurt. Nope. And excesses of sugar, sugary drinks, Pepsis, Cokes, cakes, pies, cookies, stevia, agave, excesses of maple syrup, molasses, and honey. Yeah. Okay. Now, when we get people to stop that, when you stop the injury to the endothelial cell, they recover. As the endothelial cells recover, they make more nitric oxide. As they make more nitric oxide, the disease is halted, and we begin to see often disease reversing. So what do you say to somebody who's 70 and says, you know what, forget it. I'm, I'm so far along at this point in my life. Even if I did make this really uncomfortable change to my life, it's not going to make any difference. I've done the damage. I've sort of got what I've got. That's about the absurd thing. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you at somebody at 70 say, listen, I'm right on the edge of where if I do this much longer, I can have vascular dementia where I won't even recognize you guys anymore and I'll just be in my own private little world. No, that's insane. The oldest patient I have in second is 90, is now 95. Wow. And they would have had heart disease much earlier in their life and changed oh, their... No, they had their heart disease. Right. He had heart disease, he had uh, stents, and uh, wanted to know how to stop it. He wasn't happy with what he was learning from his doctors. He found this, and now that he's been with us now for over 10 years, he started with this when he was 85, now he's 95. Wow. Yeah. Now, there's, there is an interesting uh, patient that we have recently that a couple of, uh, actually it was her, her daughter became aware of what I was doing, but her mother was in her, she was 80. And normally she was a, a candidate for what we call hospice. That's, that's the ball game. It's over, right? Right. Well, her daughter said, instead of hospice, I'll take her home. Because she, she was, her, her, her heart was working at 10% efficiency. And in other words, anything over 50% is normal. She was obviously in heart failure. But the daughter said, okay, I'll just, she could give her, through a teaspoon, she could give her these vegetable soups. She apparently had read our, read our book, spun from the vegetable soups after several weeks. The mom was now able to chew a little, so she began chewing and got better. And she got to the point where she could sit up, chew a little more, 
sit up, take a few steps, sit up. That was when she was 80. She is now 87. She swims. <laughs> she bikes. She drives. Wow. That's awesome. That's amazing. Yeah, so I, I want to go back to the oil and the fat comments because that's, I think, people probably perked up when they heard that. Like for us, it's it's not new because we've actually read all of your books and we've done lots of our own research. But for people that I'm asking on behalf of them, they'll say, well, I need to have fat in my diet to produce hormones or I need to eat nuts. And and I'm, th I'm not talking about heart disease patients who have already had a heart attack. But like you said, almost all of us didn't eat a plant-based diet growing up. So what would you say to like an athlete who has changed their diet like I have but still is eating nuts and seeds and avocado. What would you tell them? That's fine. They have no, they have no heart disease and they're eating, uh, you know, they're eating nuts and avocado. I, yeah, it's kind of And what about like the lower, so like if you're not eating any type of oil at all and no nuts, seeds, avocado, things like that, your total percentage is of fat is pretty low in your diet, right? Yeah, 11%. Yeah, so how does that affect hormone production? Fine, no problem. Awesome. It's good to know yeah. that. It's not a, a no-fat diet. Look, there is fat in grains, right? There is fat in beans and, and lentils and legumes. There is fat in vegetables. There is fat in potatoes. You know, how many people do you know who are eating this way went to the emergency room and said, my God, help me out, I'm fat deficient. <laughs> None. Nobody. Yeah. The first question people usually ask is protein, and it's the same type of answer, correct? Like, it's in everything. Uh, yeah. How many people have gone to the emergency room, help me out, I'm protein deficient? <laughs> I've actually had people tell me, oh, I, I started eating a plant-based diet, but now I feel like I'm protein deficient. And I asked them, like, well, what does that even feel like? Like, is there a symptom for protein deficiency? It's, I think it's in their head. Well, for instance, what about, use the example of the Tarahumara Indians. When Bill Connor went down to study them, 583, not one was obese, right? Not one had hypertension. They live on the three sisters, beans, corn, and squash. No nutritional deficiencies. They crossed the border. They entered the Pikes Peak race running. Come in first, third, and fifth, running on homemade sandals from old tires. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, guys. What's what's going on here? Yeah. Yeah, and if you guys listening want to read more about the Tara Humara Indians and, and the story, it's in the book Born to Run, and it's an awesome book. By McDougal. Yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to, to say to our listeners before we sign off? I would have one final comment. This seismic revolution that is before us in health in this nation is never going to come about through another pill another procedure, or another operation. But the seismic revolution that is before us will come about when we in the profession and persons like yourself have the will and the grit and the determination to share with the public what indeed is the lifestyle, and most specifically, what is the nutritional literacy that will empower them to be the locus of control to absolutely annihilate chronic illness. Thank you. Awesome. Excellent. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And yeah, it's been really fun to talk to you. Like Matt and I both are like big fans of you. So yeah. <laughs> we're like, we get to talk to Dr. Austin. <laughs> yeah, thank you for it so much. We appreciate obviously all your work and, and your time today too. Yeah. Okay, take care. Right, bye, -bye. bye, Anne. Bye, Anne. What an honor to get to talk to Dr. Esselstyn. That guy has made such a huge difference in the world and in my life, and I love his sense of humor as well. I love their whole family, actually. Part of me wants to be secretly adopted. Anne is Dr. Esselstyn's wife, and I got to chat with her before the show. I've gotten to speak with Rip, and their daughter, Jane Esselstyn, will be coming on the show in later months to talk about how to actually cook plant-based. So I hope you guys are enjoying the show. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks so much for sharing with your friends. Thanks for sending me messages. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. The reviews really help with getting the show around and making sure that people can find it so that it can bring entertainment and hopefully some inspiration and advice on how to live better. 
As always, I'd love to connect with you guys on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and don't forget the Plant Power Tribe Facebook group. It's really cool. There's so many people who are requesting to be added and we approve everybody. Don't worry. You don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to eat a plant-based diet. You just have to be plant curious and it just helps us stay motivated to eat a healthier diet whenever you surround yourself with like-minded people. I've been toying with the idea of doing some Facebook Live in the group. That way people can ask more questions about plant-based nutrition because it can't be daunting. I've been eating this way for almost five years and I'm still learning things every single day. The Patreon, you guys, thank you so much. Those of you who are contributing financially to my work, it's really helpful. It makes a huge difference. And I'm going to try to be more active on Patreon to help bring you guys some previews, some sneak previews, and some benefits of being a member. Because my trip to Chile got canceled, I was able to find a fare sale and a direct flight to Phoenix. And living in Kelowna, it's even hard for me to say, Kelowna, we don't really have very many direct flights places. We have direct flights within Canada to a few spots, but a direct flight to Phoenix is pretty sweet and that is through WestJet. So I was excited to find that. I'm gonna go for a few days and just get some mega volume in riding outside because where I live, you can't ride your bike outside for three months. And it's still kind of hard for me to accept that sometimes, but the trainer is also a really great spot to build fitness. It's the most efficient way to train. And it pretty much guarantees that every single minute is gonna be worth your while. I wanna thank our podcast sponsor, Health IQ. Health IQ uses science and data to secure lower rates on life insurance for athletes and health conscious people like us. It's pretty crazy. They actually will use your Strava, they'll use your race results, they'll look at the health app on your phone whenever they're assessing what you qualify for. And people save up to 33% on their life insurance. And I know I like saving money. It's pretty cool that they're doing that and it's really nice to be rewarded for actually taking care of ourselves. So go to healthiq.com slash Sonia or mention the promo code Sonia when you talk to a Health IQ agent. That's it for this week, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate that you're here. I really appreciate it when you share with your friends and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week. Bye.